you find uh, Joshua chapter 5 um, very short uh, reading tonight very few verses to actually home in on but there's there's quite a lot there uh, so Joshua chapter 5 and I'm just going to read verse 13 to verse 15 now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, or no, as it is in some translations, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, or another translation equally be worship, and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now what we're going to be seeing tonight obviously applies to all believers because everything in the whole Bible does. Um, but we are going to see that it does in some ways especially apply to any who are in leadership or, or certainly any who aspire to leadership in the future um, you know because we're going to see very much you know sort of like God working in Joshua in relation to the fact um, that he was responsible for leading Israel at this time and uh, leading them into the first battle um, of the taking of the promised land i.e. The, the battle of Jericho so we're certainly going to see um, a lot about leadership and um, Obviously, as I say, for any in leadership or those who aspire to leadership at some point in the future, there are going to be lots of pointers of what is required. But to those who are neither leaders now nor aspire to being leaders in the future, there's a lot of tips here in how to assess leadership in a proper way. Um, you know, because remember, those who don't lead are nevertheless responsible for deciding to follow those who do. And, uh, you know, so therefore you've got to know how to decide, is this leadership worth following, as it were. So it certainly applies to everyone, but uh, as I say, a lot that we're going to be seeing tonight is God dealing with uh, Joshua in regards to the fact that he, he's leading God's people. Now, in, in verse 13, he says that now when Joshua was near Jericho and um, the first battle of the taking of the promised land was looming, um, and uh, Joshua, the point is about him being near Jericho. He'd gone as close as he safely could to weigh up the situation for himself. Um, he's, he's weighing it all up. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to be the first battle and it's a nasty one. I mean, Jericho was um, a very kind of, um, you know, sort of like a difficult uh, place to take because of the walls. And 
it, it, it was all a bit a bit dodgy and, and one can just feel Joshua maybe pacing up and down uh, maybe he was um, you know probably biting his nails uh, they didn't have smoking then but if they had a done and had he been a smoker he'd have been chain smoking I expect and uh, he was crumbs you know how on earth are we gonna do this and uh, you know kind of the question that would have been in his mind here is, is how do I lead Israel through this crumbs you know sort of like how do I do it and uh, and while he's um he's sort of like you know pacing up and down he's he's confronted with a, a soldier who's got his sword drawn um, you know sort of like uh, as if suddenly ju just there because uh, you know I mean sort of Joshua would have been fairly wary I would imagine he'd be vigilant to make sure that no one was creeping up on him or anything like that but nevertheless regardless of uh, ha how it happens he's um, confronted with with this soldier with um, his his sword drawn sword drawn his sword drawn <laughs> and um, and so he, he does what um, any soldier does he, he goes towards this bloke and challenges him you know I mean are you for us or you know for our foes you know I mean I you know are you one of the blokes from Jericho or are you one of my people from my army you know I'd, I'd better go and find out who's whose side he's on and uh, but 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 in going up to challenge this soldier with the drawn sword um, Joshua doesn't realize at this point that, that he's about to learn a massive lesson and that one of the most profound things that the Lord had ever done in his life was about to take place now and it was the last thing that Joshua was expecting and often when God works in very deep ways it, it, it's often the very last thing that you were expecting and um, in verse 14 um, we we see yeah, I mean Joshua said are you for us or for our foes and uh, and the man says neither basically he says no and uh, and this this man, this soldier, identifies himself as being the Lord. And what happens here is that Joshua, out of the blue, is now standing face to face with Jesus in his pre-existence. So here, he's face to face with the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, before the Incarnation. And, uh, and I thought what it would be good to do at this point is, is to have a look at some of the other places in the Bible where in the Old Testament, where before, before the second person of the Trinity became a man, all right, and to see in Old Testament times a few occasions when people were confronted with Jesus in his pre-existence face to face. And uh, so if, if you go first of all to, um, to Genesis and uh, if you find... Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse 8 and, and 9 and uh, this is just shortly after Eve has eaten the fruit and um, of the tree and uh, given some to Adam who also ate it and then verse 8 and 9 says that then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man 
where are you? And now go down to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now one of the things is, obviously, the Bible makes it quite clear that God the Father is not corporeal. He doesn't have a body. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. But uh, it's, it's quite clear that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did have a body. And more than that, it was his body upon which the human body is fashioned. Now, we're not saying here that the second person of the Trinity is a man. He became a man 2,000 years ago in the Incarnation. But at this point, he isn't a man. But when he appears, he appears in the likeness of a man. And what this tells us is that the idea that we're created in the image of God is not just spiritual and emotional. I mean, it is all that as well, but it's also physical. The second person of the Trinity had a body, and so we are made in the image of God, and that is physical and literal as well. So I emphasise, we're not saying here that the Lord God, the second person of the Trinity, is a man. He's God. He became a man 2,000 years ago. This, in Old Testament times, is before he became a man. But when he reveals himself to people, he looks like a man. Because it's his body that the human body is fashioned on. And so here we see that Adam and Eve, you know, I mean, that it, it was the Lord God who walked in the garden in the cool of the day. That was Jesus. Jesus in his pre-existence. If you go to a Genesis 18 and uh, see someone else who met Jesus in his pre-existence. And this, this is Abraham. Right, so Genesis 18, first of all, ver verse 1. Uh, well, verse 1 and 2. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mumri, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. Uh, now go to verse 10. Then the Lord said, I will re surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Um, go down to verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, so it's quite clear that these three men, inverted commas, who appear, one of them is the Lord God. It's Jesus in his pre-existence. The other two would have doubtless been angels, who can also appear looking like men if they so desire. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? And then get down to verse 17. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So the word of God makes it quite clear, you know, that here, on this occasion, that three men come and visit Abraham on this summer's day, and one of them is the Lord God. And the text makes it absolutely clear that it was the Lord. Again, it was Jesus in his pre-existence. And here, Abraham, he only realises afterwards, is, is face to face with the Lord God. Go to Genesis 32. Uh, 
Now, this, this is the story about Jacob. He ended up face to face with the Lord, only this was a real close encounter, this was. Quite, quite different. This wasn't kind of like Jacob standing there and the Lord standing there. This was somewhat different, as you'll see. Genesis 32 and verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So rolling around on the floor, this is a wrestling match. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And of course here, Jacob is at last being honest about himself. His, you know, his name Jacob means supplanter, deceiver. This is God bringing a man who's been following him for 20 years into submission, breaking him. It's the significance of breaking the hip. It's the strongest part of the man's body. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob but Israel because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And Jacob knew that, that, that he'd seen God face to face, the Lord God. And this was a wrestling match. This was incredibly physical. But of course it was, it was the Lord demonstrating a point to Jacob. It was the Lord doing a work in his life, a picture of, of, of a man being broken, um, a picture of how discipleship ultimately must entail the breaking of our will, the breaking of our strength. Because as Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in, in me. And, and we have to be got out of the way. Um, you know, there's, there's treasure in this earthenware vessel, but for the treasure to come out, the earthenware vessel has to be broken. And that's, that's the picture here. But uh, it's Jacob, he's, he's got the Lord God face to face. Jesus in his pre-existence. Amazing. Um, go to Judges now, the non-Genesis one. So this is after the story we're seeing about Joshua. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. This is the calling of a Gideon. Uh, Judges 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said. Now it's interesting because sometimes in the Old Testament when you get the phrase the angel of the Lord, 
So you get an angel of the Lord, that could be an angel. But often when you get the angel of the Lord, because remember the word angel simply means messenger, and that here in this instance we're seeing that this phrase, the angel of the Lord, actually refers to the Lord himself. Because here Jesus is bringing a message from God the Father. That's what angel means, messenger. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said, I will be with you. See, this is undoubtedly Jesus. It's undoubtedly the Lord. Uh, I will be with you. You will strike down the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it really is you talking to me. And, uh, and if you just go to uh, verse 24, just ends by saying, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abai's rites. And uh, Gideon knew that, that he, he had the Lord face to face. And uh, remember that, that Jesus' name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, and it means salvation. And um, that, that's the name, you know, Jesus' is salvation. He always was. And it's interesting, isn't it, in the Psalms, when you often get a, you know, like phrases, the Lord is my salvation. Well, in the Hebrew, that's literally, the Lord is my Yeshua. The Lord is my Jesus. And, uh, you know, so, so here we're, we're seeing in the Old Testament when people face to face with Jesus in his pre-existence and uh, this this is exactly uh, the position that that Joshua finds himself in now this kind of old oh goodness how are we going to you know uh, do this one and and then out of the blue he's confronted with with Jesus and um, and remember he said are you for us or for our foes and uh, basically the man has said no because at that point Joshua didn't know who it was and he says are you for us or for them and the bloke says no and he should have said either I'm, I'm for them or, or for you but no neither no and of course what's happening here is that the Lord is pronouncing a big no over Joshua's leadership remember the question occupying Joshua at the moment is, is how do I lead Israel through this how do I lead Israel against Jericho and win? And now the Lord appears to him and he says, you're not going to lead Jericho. And he pronounces a no over Joshua's leadership. And, um, and that what the Lord says is he says, no, look, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Not you, Joshua. You're not in charge here. I'm in charge. And that's the lesson that Joshua is going to learn here that Jericho is God's baby. Not Joshua's baby. Jericho was God's baby. I mean, from the foundation of time, God knew that Israel was going to go against Jericho. And God had already got it sussed out how it was going to happen. It wasn't Joshua's responsibility. You know, the battle was the Lord's. And so the Lord pronounces a no over Joshua. You know, this isn't your problem. This isn't your baby. I'm the one who's in charge here. So, what he's discovering, Joshua was seeing himself as in charge of the army of the Lord, Israel, and its army. 
But now he's confronted with Jesus, who is actually the commander of the Lord of Hosts. But, you know, and it, so, so that Jesus is not just the commander of the army of Israel, but he's also the commander of the army of the angels of the Lord, that the entire angelic realm is subject to him. And so Joshua is discovering who is really in charge. And what he does is he falls down, face down to the ground in worship. And he says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Or as it says in the RSV, what does my Lord bid his servant to do? Now, that, that is more like it. Joshua has, all of a sudden, he's gone from the nail-biting situation, how am I going to lead Israel through this, to now being flat on his face before the Lord, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And can you see the shift in emphasis? When we take the reins of our life, it's worry, worry, fret, fret, what am I going to do? When we're in submission to Jesus, Whereas it were on our faces saying, what do you want me to do? Which is entirely different, because there's no worry or fretting in that. It's able to pass the burden on to the Lord, simply for you to be willing to actually be obedient to whatever it is he actually wants you to do. And so what's happening here, that Joshua has, has, has gone from kind of like, rather than being a big leader, the Lord's got him exactly where he wants him, on his face before him, a pleb, just like everyone else in Israel, a servant. Not a big leader, but a servant. So Joshua is now, Lord, what do you bid your servant to do? And that's, that's one of the most important things about leadership. That leadership sees itself as simply a servant of the Lord, the same as every other believer is. No more, nor less than that. Not kind of big, what am I going to do, and how do I, blah, 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 blah. But, but Joshua bowed down before the Lord, acknowledging his servanthood, acknowledging his plebhood. You know, he, he was no different to anyone else in Israel. And... Um, I want to see, in parallel, to actually look in the New Testament at the example of, of Peter, which we've certainly done in other studies in the past, but I want to do it again because he, it's just such a superb example of the work that God has to do in, uh, in us to, to prepare us for leadership. And yet, even if one isn't going to be a leader, there's still a work here that represents what God has to do in us. So if you go to, um, to Luke... First of all, Luke, Luke chapter 22. We'll be skipping around a bit here in, in, in the Gospels. But to put, put the picture together. And uh, first of all, Luke, Luke 22. And uh, if you find verse 24. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. 
But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the disciples, and Peter amongst them, have been discussing who they think is the greatest of the disciples. You know, who's the big man? Okay. Um, and Jesus is saying, no, that, that's how it works in the world. In the kingdom, authority works the other way round. Authority is servanthood. Bigness is smallness. The biggest among you is the one who's going to be the most childlike, the one who's prepared to do the little things. All right. And then he goes on to say, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny, th you will deny three times that you know me. Um, so what, what you know, sort of Jesus is saying here, that Satan obviously wanted to destroy Peter because Satan hates Christians. So he wanted to destroy Peter as he did all the disciples. But nevertheless, Jesus is saying, but I'm going to use this, and rather than Satan destroy you, I'm going to let him do what he's planning to do, but it's going to sift you like wheat, like a threshing sledge. And he says, what's going to happen is you're going to get a good thrashing, Peter, and all the chaff is going to be beaten out of you. And with the chaff beaten out of you, what's going to be left is the good stuff, i.e. the life of Jesus. All right. Now then, go over to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. And find verse 27. And this is Mark kind of telling us the same little bit of the story. Mark 14, verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, Peter's kind of assessment of himself here is Jesus you can count on me don't you worry Jesus you know I won't let you down the others doubtless they will but Lord even if they do I will not let you down Lord I'm going to die for you this this was Peter's assessment of himself 
Peter wasn't really hearing what Jesus was saying to him. I mean, Jesus has said, when you have, you know, sort of turned again, strengthen your brothers. Because Jesus knew that it was only after Peter had, had met with, with such failure that Peter himself wouldn't imagine he was capable of it. It was only after going through that failure that, that Peter would become the kind of man who could be the kind of leader that Jesus wanted him to be. But what we're seeing here, Peter's assessment of himself is, you can count on me, Lord, don't you worry. And I mean, he meant it. I mean, when he said he'd die for Jesus, he loved Jesus that much. He wanted to be able to. The only problem is that his assessment of himself was completely wrong. And Jesus was here saying, Peter, basically, you've got a wrong impression of yourself. And uh, it's only going to be through a very great failure, a very great fall, that you're going to realise the truth about yourself. And then you're going to be able, at the end of yourself, to start drawing on the strength that comes from me, that's going to enable you to be how you want to be. Um, go now to John 21. John chapter 21. And verse 15. Now remember, the sifting was that, G that Peter did deny Jesus three times. And you'll remember that uh, immediately after the third denial, uh, he saw Jesus being taken from the courtyard of the high priest's house, and their eyes met, and, and, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And of course, what was happening is that in that betrayal, that was what enabled Peter to see the truth about himself and remember what Jesus has said to him that when you've turned again I, when you've repented after that failure then feed my sheep see you're not ready yet you can't lead yet Peter alright now then let's pick it up here in John 21 and this is Jesus talking with Peter after Jesus has been raised again from the dead verse 15 when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And of course, this feed my sheep is, is, is in the Greek, it's be a pastor. It's what being a, a pastor, a shepherd, is all about. Be a leader of God's people. And so what's happening is that now Peter is ready to be a leader. He wasn't before his great failure. And the reason he wasn't before his great failure, and the Lord knew he wasn't before his great failure, was because Peter considered himself to be a success. Peter considered himself to be well able to follow the Lord, well able to be sold out to God, well able to you know, be obedient to what the Lord wanted him to do. 
Now the great problem is that if you're a leader of God's people, you're leading failures. So Peter, who considered he wasn't a failure, would have not been a very good leader of other believers who were failures because he would have been intolerant. He would have been impatient. He would have been completely unable to identify with the people that he was leading. And what Peter had to realise is that he was a failure as well. It just hadn't got through to him yet. He was no different from anyone else. Remember, Peter said, even if all these betray you, Lord, I won't. See, Peter expected that all, all other believers were failures, but not him. He was quite capable. And that was the work that the Lord had to do in him. And he simply allowed Satan to thrash him like wheat. And in that situation where Peter was, was put in a position where what he told Jesus he'd do, he could do, die for him. And, Jesus, uh, and, and Peter bottled completely. He knew what he wanted to do, but when he was confronted with the situation, he was a coward. He couldn't do it. And so now, beyond the failure, and here Jesus is reminding him about his failure. In Jesus saying, do you love me, and saying that three times, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. This was an incredibly salutary and sobering little conversation that Peter is here having with Jesus. In effect, here, Jesus is personally commissioning Peter for his leadership role. Everything that Jesus had been preparing him for, for three and a half years, now Jesus is saying, now you're ready to actually be a leader. But Jesus is doing it by reminding him of his failure. That he came to absolutely nothing, just like all the other disciples did <clears throat> as well. And so therefore, for anyone in leadership, by definition, you are leading helpless, hopeless sinners. How vitally important it is that leaders realise that that is true of them as well. Do you remember Isaiah? You know, like five chapters of woe to them and woe to you and woe to him and woe to her. It was all true. But it was only in chapter 6 that Isaiah gets a vision of Jesus in all his glory. And then, for the first time, he says, woe is me. And it was only when Isaiah saw that he was himself as sinful as the people to whom he was called as a prophet, it was only then that he began to prophesy about the coming Messiah. So up until then, all he could do, it was all true, but it was, it was, you know, leading people into bondage and condemnation. It was only when he took his place as, as a completely helpless sinner as well, a complete failure, it was only then that his leadership really did begin to show through the life of Jesus. And if you go to 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter, there's just a little something that he says that kind of shows how Peter had kind of learnt what Jesus wanted him to learn. Um, if you just find 1 Peter, chapter 5, and uh, start reading from, from verse 1, and this is a, 
This is Peter writing to other leaders of churches. And he says, to, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So he doesn't come on with the big apostle bit. You know, he's just, you know, this is Peter, he's just as a fellow elder. I'm one of you, lads, he says. A witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not lording it over them, serving them. Um, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, because how aware Peter was, he wasn't in control, Jesus was. He was himself in submission to Jesus. He was the chief shepherd. He's the chief elder. He's the chief pastor. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And so I think you can see from that the, the change in Peter that the Lord had brought in him. The big man, the big I'm a success, I know the rest of you aren't, but you leave it to me. Lord, you can count on me. And how Peter was, was taken through the process of, of complete and total failure in every regard and it was only through him going that going through that that he was then becoming the kind of man who could lead because he realized that he was leading other people who were just like him and so whereas leadership needs to be clear and sometimes firm and sometimes strong nevertheless it is always sympathetic it is always a compassionate thing because the leader himself knows that he's just one of the lads and he's in the same boat as everyone else he is himself a failure and has possibly tasted of his own failure even more maybe than some of the people he's actually trying to lead and so what we see here in Peter we're seeing here in Joshua as well when Joshua meets Jesus in his pre-existence and suddenly Israel's leader is flat on his face before the Lord. Israel's leader is taking his rightful place before the Lord in order to become the kind of leader that God wants him to be. So now let's go back to, to, to Joshua and pick up the story. Joshua chapter 5. I've lost it myself now. And in verse 15, and you can see that this is all kind of the same, the same kind of thing. In verse 15, read it, the commander of the Lord's army replied. Notice all the time the commander of the Lord's army, the commander of the, because it's making Joshua realise that he wasn't, say, technically from the human point of view he was. But reality, in reality, spiritually, he wasn't at all. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And so here, Joshua takes his sandals off. He takes his shoes off. 
And that's something that you remember someone else had done some years earlier, Moses at the burning bush. And we saw, didn't we, how Joshua had been, as it were, a follower of Moses, how all through his, his growing up that Joshua stuck close with him to learn everything he could from Moses about following the Lord. And now we're seeing how Joshua has to go the same way as Moses. I mean, sometimes it's easy maybe to, to look at someone who's you know, further ahead in, in the Christian life maybe than you are and to think, you know, I want one day to be where they are and, and that, that's an excellent thought to have. Paul said of people, look, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That, that's great. You see people who are further down the road, you want to be like them in their discipleship as Joshua had wanted to be like Moses. But if you're going to end up like them, you've got to go the way that they went. And Moses knew what it was to take his shoes off before the Lord. And now the Lord is saying to Joshua to take his shoes off. And, uh, you know, so we've got to, to ask why. You know, why is, why is this thing about t take your sandals off? And, of course, the thing is that, 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 that sandals are footwear. And, and footwear is for going places in. And the whole point of this exercise is for Joshua to realise of himself he's not going anywhere at all. It's the Lord who's doing it. It's not Joshua doing it at all. And it's so easy to think of leadership or, or, or being used by God or, or, you know, in evangelism or whatever. It's so easy to end up almost thinking in terms of like going places for the Lord. You know, that, that, that Joshua was, was going places. He was the leader of Israel. They were going into the promised land. And this taking off of his sandals was the Lord saying, look, you, you're actually not going anywhere. I'm going places in and through you, but you of yourself, you're not going anywhere at all. In fact, here is a dead stop. Because this, at the end of the day now, is where Joshua's going to die to himself completely. It's not going to be Joshua anymore. It's going to be the Lord through him. Now, let's have a look in regards to this people going places, all right? Let's have a look in someone else's life in the New Testament. And let's look at Paul the Apostle. Because I'm saying that this kind of, you know, taking your shoes off your feet is the end of any idea of going places for the Lord, all right? And if we go to Philippians, and let's have a look at Paul the Apostle's experience. And in looking at his experience, I think we're um, certainly going to see some important things about this. Right, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, start with the, the second half of, of verse 4. And he says, If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now then, we can see here that as Paul looks back, all right, on his life, 
he was certainly looking back and realising that he was a man who was going places. I mean, he really was an up-and-coming young leader amongst the Pharisees in Israel. So religiously, he was destined for great things, all right. I mean, he was really heading to, to, to becoming an important religious figure of the day. So then, Paul, we can say, was a man on his way up. Now, bearing that in mind, go back into chapter 2 and find verse 5. And just read uh, through to verse 8. And he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here, Paul is tracing how Jesus, in his pre-existence, in his natural state as being God himself in eternity, became a man, became a servant, not a king, became a servant, all right, and then humbled himself to even death on a cross. So we've seen Paul was the man who was definitely going up. But in Jesus, we see the exact opposite. Jesus was the man not going up. Jesus was the man coming down. Right? And here's a fundamental difference between the pride of man and the humility of God. Paul was a man going up. Jesus was the man going down. Now go over to Acts chapter 9 and we're going to look at the actual point where Paul became a believer. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 Meanwhile Saul, which was what he was called then, was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now here was Paul riding along, travelling on his donkey, as they did in those days. We've established that Paul was the man going up. Jesus was the man going down. What happens when the man going up meets the man coming down? When the man going up meets the man coming down, Jesus, the man going up gets knocked off his donkey into the dust. And that is something that must happen to every believer. Not just in regards to becoming a Christian. Here it's Paul's you know, conversion. But ultimately, all of us have got to meet with the man coming down because Jesus humbles himself. 
and on his way down he knocks us off our donkey he knocks us off our plans he knocks us off our me 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 he knocks me off of the I and remember that the, the cross if, if you do an I you know like you know sort of like, like the, the cross is I and you cross it out that's what the cross is and uh, there are two other accounts that Paul gives um, in the Acts of the Apostles of when he got converted. There are two occasions when he gives his testimony. And uh, we, we learn from that, um, that 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 his conversion actually happened at noon. And uh, so, so therefore we can say that all of us have got to meet our high noon <laughs> as well. You know. And... And so that's exactly what is here happening with Joshua. Where is Joshua? He's on, he's, he's on the ground in the dust before the Lord. Where was Paul? On the ground in the dust before the Lord. Because the man going up met the man coming down and fell off his donkey. And that's happening with Joshua. We saw how it had to happen with Peter, didn't we? And you remember with Moses, when he took his shoes off at the burning bush, um, that, that there, you know, God said, right, now it's time to go and free my people. And um, he, he, he was all excuses, wasn't he? You remember. Now, 40 years earlier, Moses, with all the advantages of having been brought up as Pharaoh's son, decided it was time to, you know, kind of help the Israelites. He, he knew that he was a Jew as well. And he was all kind of, you know, I mean, God had called him, but he was all kind of cocky and brash, and this is what I'm going to do for the Lord. He murdered an Egyptian. It, it couldn't have gone more wrong. Do you know what I mean? It could not have gone more wrong, because he moved in his own strength. And he ended up having to flee from Egypt completely. Forty years in the wilderness as a shepherd. Okay. Now then, what has God done in him in that 40 years. Well now, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses again, and say, Moses, you remember that calling 40 years ago, and you, you blew it. Well now it's time to do it properly. Now Moses is all excuses. Why? Because he's been humbled. He's the exact opposite of, oh, well, that's all right, Lord, I'm your man. He's the exact opposite of that now. He knows the truth about himself. In fact, he's too far the other way. The Lord actually has to, you know, kind of bring him a bit more into the centre. Stop all these excuses. I'm with you. You know, that's all you need. I'm with you. But Moses, he's matured. He's, he's broken like Jacob. He's limping. He knows that it's got to be the Lord doing it through him. And uh, in actual fact, and we saw this in an earlier study, didn't we? that Moses was actually the humblest man in the world. See, that's, that's what God, you know, sort of like wants to do in us. I mean, you might look great riding into town on your donkey, but when you fall off and all the townsfolk see it, that's humbling. But that's where every leader has to go. That's where every believer has to go, to be humble, to realise the truth about ourselves. And so, in the same way that you take, you know, Joshua had to take his shoes off. There was, you know, he, he wasn't going anywhere anymore. And uh, there, there is no going places in leadership, it, it, except maybe down. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's servanthood leadership is. You don't know what it entails, but whatever it, form it's going to take, it's serving people. 
and it's 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 not romantic and it is greatly inglorious if you go to um 1, 1 corinthians 1 corinthians chapter 4 let's just read um verse 9 1 corinthians 4 verse 9 and this is paul talking about himself as one of the apostles i mean you know fr from you know the apostles the greatest of the disciples of Jesus all right so so here's what the greatest means he says it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as to men and then go down to the second half of verse 13 up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth the refuse of the world I mean that's not very romantic but that is people looking on that's what they saw of the apostles that's what their ministry their servanthood meant because of all the difficulties it got them into all the dreadful way they were treated by so many people that's what it looked like you know that they were the scum of the earth because that's how people treated them but if you love people and if you want to help them and, and serve them and bring them through to maturity, there are going to be times when they do treat you like the scum of the earth. That's part of loving them. That's how we treated Jesus. We've all done it. And um, so rather, you know, we, we, we take our shoes off because we're not going anywhere. But rather, we are to be God's shoes, as it were, for him to go places in. You know, just available channels i mean my, my shoes don't decide where they're going not even my timberlands you know they go where i go they don't make their own decisions and that that's how it is to be with us and uh just available you know god's shoes for him to walk in so it's him doing it not us and whilst we're on the image of walking in shoes uh, i mean I'm, I'm just it just calls to mind that vision that roger price had and it it, it, it it's so very very true and um and you know in regards to leading um you know the church down in in bognor there was a you know you know a time when i think some you know some people were not treating him too well and he was like praying about it and the lord just gave him the vision of him being a doormat because he, he felt that they were treating him like a doormat and the lord gave him a vision of a doormat showing him, yes that's right you know you are a doormat you know they're walking all over you but at least kind of like the dirt is being removed from their feet you know a variation on foot washing isn't it really and uh, you know and so roger price he got the message that that being treated like a doormat was part and parcel of what his eldership meant that was part of what it was and that 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 helped him come to terms with the situation he was in and loving whoever it was who wasn't you know sort of being too uh, too good to him and um and then after a while he sort of you know sort of prayed and said oh lord i think i'm getting the hang of this what next and the lord gave him a picture of a doormat with welcome <laughs> written on it you know that then you're not gritting your teeth through it you you positively welcome it because it's loving people it's serving people and uh being used as a doormat is the exact opposite to what the world sees leadership and authority to be but that's what leadership and authority is it's servanthood and I just want to now just underline, okay, three things that we learn from Joshua about 
leadership. And, you know, and this must be our gauge, all right? And, uh, you know, all, all taken from his life so far as we've seen it through these studdles. Studdles, these studies, and um, the first thing in say is is that uh, you'll remember that that he he led God's people into Canaan, but after having proved himself for forty years in the wilderness, because you'll remember that all the time that that Israel wandering in the wilderness for forty years, he was there, you know, kind of like Moses' right hand man. And he proved his, if you like, Christian life during that 40 years. I.e., he had, he had a record, he had a background, a track record, and he had proved faithful and consistent in the little things, um, in, in, in the, the kind of, in the, the difficult times, and also in just the real what I call ploddy times, 40 years of plodding through the wilderness, not really feeling they were getting anywhere at all. And, and through all that, he had proved himself so that people could look back on his life and they knew his record. All right. And, uh, and so what you see in him is endurance. You see stickability you see rock solidness. Now these are things that can only be proven over a period of time. All right. Um, but you'll remember that Jesus taught about being faithful in little things first. If you're faithful in little things, God will entrust you with much. And that Joshua, the people knew that his track record is all the years that he was faithful when Moses was the leader and there was Joshua in the background, but Joshua had proved faithful he'd been there through the difficult times he'd been faithful in the little things and he'd shown endurance and he knew what it was to just have his head down and to plod as it were to just keep going and um you'll remember the story um in david and goliath when uh, king david he wasn't king there when david saw Goliath and he thought why why on earth is, 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 is Israel being held up by one man and you'll remember that, um, that David went to King Saul and he said look the Lord who has delivered me from the paw of lion and bear will deliver me from this Philistine and that what David had learnt is that he'd seen God deliver him when he came against lions and bears looking after the sheep and having proved faithful and having proved the Lord in the little things, that made him ready to go up against the biggie. And Joshua had proved himself to everyone in the little things. Therefore, he was ready to be the leader that Israel needed. None of this meant that he could do without this appointment the act that he had to keep with the Lord. He still had to be broken. He still had to take his shoes off. He still had to to be bowed down in the dust before the Lord. But nevertheless, he had a track record that people could see. And so that, that's the first thing in regards to a leader. Faithfulness through the difficult times, through the little things. A track record of being absolutely rock solid and stickability. Now then, the second thing that we learn from Joshua 
is that leadership has to have unshakable faith in the promises of God. You'll remember 40 years earlier that the spies went in and out of those 12 spies, two came back saying we can do it. God will get us in the promised land. And it was Joshua and it was Caleb. So people knew that he was a man of faith. He trusted the Lord. He didn't just see the impossibilities, he saw the promises of God. He always saw the Lord being bigger than the difficulties and the obstacles. And leadership has got to mean having a vision for the future. It doesn't necessarily uh, mean how, you know, knowing how to get there, but you've got to know where God wants you to go. And, uh, you know, Joshua, he, he, he knew for instance, in regards to the promised land, he had a vision for taking the promised land. That was there. He didn't know how to do it. He had to rely on the Lord day by day for that. But he had the vision. He had the faith. And that's what mattered. And, uh, you know, so therefore leadership has got to be unstoppable. Uh, except when it's wrong. Obviously, if leaders are wrong, they've got to be stoppable then. But there's got to be this unstoppability because of faith in God's promise, that you know where you're going. You might not know how God's going to get you there, but you know where you're going and you stick with it. However impossible it looks, you know what God wants and you stick with it. And, um, and also, I'd um, you know, just sort of like chuck in here as a, a kind of a addendum as well, that because he'd, he'd, he'd been in Canaan beforehand as a spy, you remember, the only people who had really got a good-looking Canaan 40 years earlier were the 12 spies and Joshua was one of the spies so he and Caleb were the only two people in the whole of Israel who actually been in Canaan and that's important because the point is he's going to lead people into Canaan and of course there's the principle if you're a leader you can only lead people where you yourself have been remember for 40 years Moses led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years where had Moses been for the 40 years before that in the wilderness Moses had 80 years in the wilderness 40 as a shepherd and 40 leading God's people through it you can only lead people where you yourself have been and then the the, the third thing that we learn from Joshua about leadership was that you need a very, very big and a very, very forgiving heart. If you go to Numbers, let's just remind ourselves of um, an incident that happened earlier on in Joshua's life. Numbers, chapter 14. This was just after he and all the spies came back from spying out the land. Right, Numbers chapter 14, and start from verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. 
Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. So what's happened here is that Joshua, and this is right in his younger days, all right, this is right at the beginning of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. <coughs> Joshua has gone across with 11 other spies, one, one man from each tribe. They've spied out the land and they've come back and the 10 spies, 10 of the spies, along with Joshua and Caleb, describe how wonderful the land is. Everyone agreed on that. But the, ten, the other 10 spies then say it's not possible for us to go in because of the giants and but we can't do it we can't do it pure unbelief all right joshua and caleb get in there saying what are you talking about of course we can the law's with us we'll swallow them up doesn't matter how big they are their protection is gone right because the law's not with them the law's with us they haven't got a chance so here they are they're talking faith as it were Everyone else is talking unbelief. Where does it get them? Well, Israel decides to stone them. Didn't actually stone them, but we're talking about it. Now, the point is, Joshua is leading a nation. For 40 years, he faithfully served all those people who wanted to kill him. Now, can you see what I mean by a very big and very forgiving heart? They didn't want to stone him for the whole 40 years, but nevertheless, at one point, they wanted to stone him. And yet, for 40 years through the wilderness, as Moses' right-hand man, Joshua faithfully served those people, even though, at one point, they'd wanted to actually kill him. <coughs> and kill him simply because he had faith in the Lord. And they hadn't. Now, that's, that's forgiveness, wasn't it? And uh, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And there's no doubt at all that um, part of leadership is by definition going to be facing bad treatment. And when that bad treatment comes, it's got to be met with a forgiving smile. We're back to Roger Price and his doormat with welcome written on it, aren't we? It's absolutely essential to any form of leadership. But this is absolutely essential. Put leadership aside for one moment. Every believer, all of us, have got to meet. When people sin against us, when people treat us badly, we've got to meet it with a forgiving smile. Now, there may be times when you can't overlook it. Things may need addressing. Things may need confronting here and there. But what I'm saying is, in the heart, it's met with a forgiving smile so that nothing is ever held against anyone. You don't stop loving people just because they're treating you badly. And, and, and here we see in Joshua, um, you know, sort of like how, how that was personified in his life. And so we're getting a picture, aren't we, of how the Lord would have particularly leaders of his church be. Why? Well, because what we're seeing, you know, kind of faithfulness, um, a forgiving heart, all these, this is what Jesus is like. 
and, and, and God wants leaders to be like him. And the reason that God wants leaders to be just like him is because leaders are there to bring those they lead to become just like him as well. Hence, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And at the heart of it, leader or no, at the heart of it, if the life of Jesus is to come through us, if people are to see Jesus rather than just us, if people are to hit up against the very life of God himself rather than just us, at the heart of it is this brokenness that Joshua experienced when he meets the man with the drawn sword. It's the, the taking our shoes off of our feet. It's that, that, that being face down in, in the dust before the Lord. It's that Jacob wrestling with God and having his thigh broken. It's self-assured Peter coming a total and complete cropper before the Lord and realising that he was a failure just like everyone else. It's Paul, the man going up, encountering the man coming down and falling off his donkey. This is at the heart, really, not just of leadership, but this is the heart of discipleship. Because it's, it's, it's only when the hard outside exterior is broken, the earthenware vessel, that the riches within Jesus can come out. And Paul talks about, to the Corinthians, being the aroma of Christ. And you'll remember a woman once who bought an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume to Jesus. Now, if you break that jar, the beautiful smell of the perfume goes everywhere. And so it is with us. If we're broken, then the aroma of Christ the life of Jesus coming out of us because God has got us out of the way. So here we are right at the eve, the, the beginning of the actual conquest of Canaan. The first battle is imminently about to start. Spiritual warfare is, is, is going to click in full blast and yet it had to begin with Joshua himself being broken and humbled before the Lord. So having seen that, next time, with the lessons Joshua needed to learn, learned, next time we move on and see the actual first battle in the conquest of Canaan and see the actual battle of Jericho. And in so doing, we're, we're going to see quite a lot um, about spiritual warfare and to see that uh, at, at the heart of spiritual warfare, all the time, is this brokenness that Joshua has experienced now. So we carry on with that next time.